Welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast. I'm producer Ruth Brown. Today I'm joined by Representative Brent Crane, a member of the Committee on Ethics and House Policy, to discuss proposals from this week's meeting. We'll talk more about the Ethics Committee meeting on Friday's show, which airs at 8 p.m. on Idaho Public Television. For more information, visit the Idaho Reports blog or visit us on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find all of those links at idahoptv.org slash idahoreports. Representative Crane, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here, Ruth. So I want to talk about House Rule 45. House Rule 45 establishes the rules for the Committee on Ethics and House Policy. Uh, 2021 was an exceptional year for the Ethics Committee. You faced uh, two public hearings, uh, one for Representative Giddings and one for former Representative Von Ellinger, after complaints were filed about those individuals. On Monday, the committee met to review some of the rules um, and a variety of um, suggestions were made about how to improve the process or maybe change the process. Because 2021 was an abnormal year for the Ethics Committee, what did you learn about the rule and are there any changes, uh, amendments that need to be made? Well, it was my first year to serve on the Ethics Committee, so it was all new. And talking to members that have previously served, this was uncharted territory that the Ethics Committee had to deal with in uh, the legislative session of 2021. Um, I don't recall in my 15 years there ever being two public hearings in the same session. Um, public hearings are very uncommon. And most of these issues are dealt with in the private phase that is built into House Rule 45. But um, there, was, there was, as we worked our way through the Von Ellinger case as well as the Giddings case, there, there was some issues that arose and we're like, you know what? that probably should be fixed. There was obviously a lot of critique uh, on the committee's work in both of those cases, people that were, were upset. And so they were you know, voicing their frustration. Uh, some of their critique was founded. It's things that, hey, obviously need to be fixed. Um, a lot of it was unfounded. And so you have to be able to separate those two and shut out all the noise and say, okay, what are legitimate complaints? What is a real problem with Rule 45 that needs to be fixed? And I'll give you an example. Due process. We had Representative Giddings decried over and over that, that the committee did not give due process in the Von Ellinger case. And if you read House Rule 45, it says that we're supposed to release the complaint. We followed House Rule 45 to the letter of the law, or the letter of the rule in this case, and we released only the complaint. Her concern was is that due process was not served and that we did not release his response to the complaint. And so, you know what, is it a fair critique? Absolutely, that's a fair critique and that's something that we are gonna change. So we decided we'll release the complaint, we'll release the response and any documents that go with it will all be public at that point and help satisfy that. Um, would it have changed the outcome of that case? Absolutely not. But is, this, is it a tweak that could be made in the rule? Certainly, and the committee is willing to do that. But there is no wholesale changes that need to be made to the rule. Uh, is it clunky? Yeah. Does it work? Yes. And, and, and we, we saw it work in both cases. On Monday and Tuesday, uh, when the committee met, there was a lot of discussion about transparency. What do you see as the value of transparency when reviewing a complaint made against a lawmaker? So we're elected officials, and um, we are elected to serve the people of our legislative district. However, we don't get to choose who comes to this legislative process. The voters do that. And we have to, as I say, we don't choose who comes here, we work with who comes here. And sometimes there are individuals that have uh, issues that arise inside the legislative process. 
Um, most of the time, those, those ethical issues are resolved in the private process. And so I feel like that the current process that we have in place works very well. There's a disciplinary action that can take place inside that private process. Most of them, uh, in fact, in my 15 years, none of them have risen, risen to the level of Representative Von Ellinger's issue, ethical issue. Um, so they're dealt with in that, in that private manner and, and that works really well. However, this year, we had some that, that went further and went into the, the public aspect of it. And so there was this, this idea that maybe everything should be put into a private process and then you put a report out there and members vote on that, that uh, report. Well, it's my belief when you're dealing with someone's reputation, and you are when you're dealing with the Ethics Committee, and the Ethics Committee is very well aware of that, the minute it goes public, it's now their reputation at stake, that there probably is a portion of this that needs to be handled in a public manner. Um, as many conspiracy theories that were floating around the whole ethics process in the Von Ellinger case and in the Giddings case, I think it would only heighten those conspiracy theories if you did not have full transparency. And so um, in, in the case of Giddings, for example, we gave her the option to meet privately. And um, I am confident that had we met privately, most of those issues would have been resolved in a private manner and it never would have gone to the public phase. She chose not to exercise that option and I understand her reason for not exercising that option. So it forced the committee then again to go into public phase. But there's value in the public phase. The, the private phase is primarily investigatory. You're doing your research. Here's the complaint. You're looking at the validity of the complaint. You're interviewing witnesses. That's primarily what it is. And then you come to a conclusion. And, and again, most of them are resolved in that phase. However, I believe that that lawmaker needs to have the ability to have a full public display and let the public weigh in. Um, I have heard from members of the public in regards to the Von Ellinger case as well as the Giddings case, what they liked or what they didn't like. And then once that concludes, then it goes to the floor. And there was stuff learned in the Von Ellinger case that was vastly different than what we were told in private. And had it all been in private, the outcome of that case may have been significantly different. And so that's the concern that I have is that if it's all shrouded in secrecy and all cloaked in, in, in privacy and secrecy, it gives, gives cause for suspicion that something is going on or it's the good old boys club or it's these guys are trying to protect their own. They're not making sure that we have an, an honest and ethical body. And the Idaho House of Representatives, uh, we want to make sure we're doing things that are transparent, that it's open, that it's honest and people can see what's going on. You mentioned something that I wanted to circle back to. Uh, Representative Giddings did choose not to participate in the preliminary investigation, the part of the phase that would be private. Do you think lawmakers should be required to participate in that initial investigation if a complaint is filed? I do. You do? Absolutely I do. Um, there is, whether you like it or not, it's a colleague-to-colleague -colleague conversation. And it can be a very difficult conversation. And you can, in private, you can uh, scold a member and in a way that they need to be scolded or bring their attention to something. Sometimes these are issues that are, are their blind spots. People don't see that the problem is, exists. And when you're able to sit down and, and have a dialogue similar to what we're having here, it, they're very informal. Um, it, there is extreme benefit. Her concern, however, is she saw how I took some of the statements that Representative Von Eller made in that private hearing and referenced them in the public hearing because they were conflicting. Well, you know what? You were sworn under oath 
in, in the private hearing to tell the truth, and you were sworn under oath in public to tell the truth. And here I am as a, as a potential juror trying to make a decision, but I've got two different instances. Absolutely, I'm going to refer to that reference that was made in private. Tell me, Representative, so what is the case here? And I think that that's fair and that's valid, but that caused her concern. Are they going to use words against me? Uh, I believe her stuff would have been resolved in, in, in the private space if she come forward, so therefore I believe members should um, come and you know, hear what the committee has to say. And getting there, there's valuable information that happens. The other thing in the, in the Von Ellinger case, he switched attorneys. So we went through uh, you know, the interview with, with uh, Scott McKay, and then he switched and went with David Lira, so we went back through the interview process again. There was information that was gleaned uh, in, the, in that private phase that was slightly different, and so it was, it was important. Uh, House Rule 45 was uh, established years ago, decades ago, but I think what makes... So initially the rule was created to deal with things such as maybe a lawmaker who has a conflict of interest or a lawmaker who could be, um, I guess, getting financial gain from a piece of legislation. You address those sorts of things. What made Aaron Von Ellinger's case different is there were allegations of sexual assault and potential workplace sexual harassment. Those are instances that involve victims. Was the rule designed to I guess address victim treatment and how how did the committee move forward with that? How should they move forward with that in the future? So we get built into the rule is the ability for us to establish our own rules as to how we want to proceed. And so there is flexibility built into the rule. I don't know that, um, I think it was Representative Wood and Representative Luker that actually crafted kind of the, um, the father, so to speak, of House Rule uh, 45. And uh, I don't think that they envisioned a Representative Von Elmer type situation. That, that is extremely unique. However, we did have enough, enough flexibility because we could flesh out our own rules that we could make it work. And we worked with his attorney, uh, Edward Dendinger. We worked with him and said, hey, here's the rules uh, that we're going to use. He said, no, I would like to, I want to push back respectfully and say I would like you to do this. So we worked back and forth and we were able to make it work. With respect to uh, witnesses, that was one of the things that we talked about is, hey, we're going to have a witness appear, but we want to try to also maintain her privacy and do that to the best of our ability. We provided, you know, a screen for her, a place where she could sit down, where she could, you know, uh, not have to be exposed to the public uh, in that regard. We also provided a private entrance and exit for her. Um, I don't know why she chose to go right out of that hallway instead of going left to the exit that was provided and instructed for her to go. I, I can't answer that question, why that happened but it did happen. But the committee very clearly made sure that her privacy was protected. Again, we can't dictate and say, you absolutely have to go out that door, um, but we provided it for her and for her, her folks, they knew that that was the, the private exit to get her out. It's unfortunate she didn't, uh, she didn't turn left, she turned right. And um, it's unfortunate because then that whole debacle that came out of that um, really kind of caused some, some a public outcry that really, um, we did everything that we could to try to protect her. And, and I felt like that we were trying, but she, she turned the wrong way. And so it's unfortunate. On uh, Monday, there was also a lot of discussion about whether an accused lawmaker should have legal representation and whether an attorney should be, I suppose, provided for them should they not be able to afford them, excuse me, afford an attorney. What, what are your thoughts on that? It's an, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm not a fan of lawyers being a part of the process at all. And, sure. and was, I, I can remember when I, I uh, walked into the meeting and there was legal counsel present and I questioned that. 
what, what are we doing? Why, why do we have lawyers here? Um, so the chairman can make that determination. The committee can also vote to make that determination. Um, legal counsel obviously can provide some directive, but from my perspective, this is a colleague to colleague um, issue. And sorry, we don't need lawyers involved in that process. So um, I'm not a huge fan of involving lawyers. And, and members on the committee, we disagree on this issue. So I need to point that out. This is an area of disagreement. However, one thing that was raised is if the, the you know, committee's gonna use an attorney, what about the, the lawmaker? Can they use an attorney? Yeah, they can, but the way it's currently written, they're funding their own uh, legal defense. And that can become extremely costly. And so we talked about that. Um, it started out on Monday that the committee was thinking, yeah, maybe we should provide the opportunity for, for legal counsel. And by Tuesday, it was changing from legal counsel to maybe resources. Um, so I would say that there's a discussion, still an ongoing discussion around that, but the issue of fairness certainly does come into play. Um, but then it, it's like, who do you hire for legal counsel? You know, if, if our legal counsel on the committee is $600 an hour legal counsel, but we're going to give you, you know, $125 an hour legal counsel, is it adequate? Is it fair? And I would argue that it's not. But do you want to expend public resources defending uh, certain members' actions? That's the other tenuous argument. Well, but they have the right to a fair trial. So these are the discussions that are going on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And I would say that there is no resolution to that issue yet. I think it's also important to note for um, viewers and listeners that the ethics hearings are not a criminal trial. And I, in my experience, most of the uh, complaints that are made against lawmakers are not criminal. Even in uh, Mr. Von Ellinger's case, he had not been criminally charged at the time of his hearing and so often it wouldn't there wouldn't be this fear of self-incrimination uh, in the sense that you could be legally uh, challenged you know should you be charged at a later date so I recognize that this year was uh, extraordinary it mm -hmm. was it was a unique situation in which he could face um, serious criminal charges yeah, and I, I mean, the, the courts are going to weigh that issue out in, in April, I think, is when the, the trial is set for. But it does get down to the issue of fairness, and, and that point was raised, and the committee heard that point. The question is, is, is where do you go? If, if I voted for the day, I would say neither side has legal counsel. This is a collegial colleague versus, you know, colleagues talking to colleagues or colleagues sitting in, in judgment of a colleague and I don't think it needs to get into the legal process. Um, we all have enough life skills that I'm sure we can figure out, was their behavior ethical or unethical? And we kept coming back to that uh, over and over in both cases. Look, we have to just shut out the noise. We have to solve this in front of us. This is the question. Was the behavior exhibited by Representative Von Ellinger ethical or unethical? Was it conduct unbecoming, I think is the term that's used in the rule, or not? And the committee decided, yeah, that, that conduct's not acceptable, period. I want to go back to the term fairness. Uh, their legislative leadership is not allowed to be on the ethics committee. Something that was discussed in the meeting this week, um, currently under the rule, uh, the House Speaker appoints the chairman of the ethics committee, and there's discussion about the ethics committee members electing their own chairman. Uh, what do you see as the value of that, of the ethics committee selecting a chair rather than the speaker? Well, it would be unique. It's, it's allowed for in Masons, but the reason uh, for doing so, 
there was again an allegation made that this is Speaker Bedke is coming after me. I'm running against him for lieutenant governor, I think was what um, Representative Giddings had. had. That was the, the allegation. This is Bedke's committee. The fact of the matter is it's patently false. And um, I ran against Speaker Bedke for Speaker. Representative Horman had just ran against Speaker Bedke for Speaker. And so to, to try to purport this narrative out there that this is a committee that's controlled by the Speaker is patently false. However, take the argument off the table, fine. Let the committee decide who they want to be their, their chairman. And that way there is no impropriety, no possibility that, oh, leadership has their, their you know, thumb on this committee. They don't. But fine, we'll remove that argument and, and make it the case. So that will be a change that will come forward and, and it will stick. Sure. That's the issue of the chairman. Maybe can you walk me through how are the ethics committee members selected? That's a vote in the caucus, correct? Right. So um, typically, the, the previous rule used to say in the first 12 days, you had to have a caucus meeting and members are elected. Uh, they cannot be a member that is in their first term. They also cannot be a member of leadership. So once you scrub that group out, there you have your remaining slate. I think the other qualifiers, they can't uh, have a charge filed against them. Um, in, in the case of Representative uh, Giddings would not be allowed to serve on the Ethics Committee. So it's not just filed against you, it's that there's actually action taken on that charge, disciplinary action. So um, once you scrub that list, then they, they vote on those. They just put an entire list out and we all you know, rank our top three or our top five. And then they go and here's the vote counts for the top five. And that's how they're selected. It's pretty pretty simple process. Um, obviously, you know the top three vote getters are permanent members of the committee. The bottom two vote getters are alternates. Should there be a need for alternates, and in this case, with Representative Davis, she was unable to serve, and so Representative McCrosty filled in as her alternate. Sure. Um. I can see that you take your role on the committee very seriously, and you hold your colleagues to a high standard. Moving into 2022 in January, what can Idaho do to strive to promote a sense of professionalism in the Capitol? Well, I, if, if I was a sitting lawmaker, I would go back and I would watch um, both of those hearings, those public hearings. Listen to what committee members said in their, in their closing statements in both cases, the Von Ellinger and the Giddings. There was, there was wisdom that was imparted to members and I was very proud of the work that the Ethics Committee did. We set a very high standard of what we expect in, in the House of Representatives. One thing that was confusing is people thought that we could also address ethical issues in the Senate. We cannot. We only have jurisdiction over the House of Representatives, but we have drawn a very high bar of what type of um, conduct we expect of members in the House of Representatives. And members, most members strive to try to have that kind of, kind of conduct if they fall short. Again, that's where you typically deal with those in, in a private hearing and they're dealt with. But by and large, we have pretty good people that come to serve, but we wanted to make a very clear and bright line, this is what we expect if you're gonna serve in this body. Representative Crane, I appreciate your time today. Is there anything else I've forgotten to ask? I think you pretty well covered House Rule 45. It's, um, most people don't know this, but it's, it's a, to be on that committee, um, you know, some people say it's, uh, it's a tough tour of duty, other people view it as an honor. But you're not, you're, you're asked to serve on that committee. I mean, you're kind of volunteered. The other thing that, that was, was interesting in dealing with the public is they felt like the committee brought these charges. Committee doesn't bring these charges. We don't get to choose what charges come before the committee or do not come before the committee. So when a charge appears, you get summoned to go have your first preliminary meeting 
and you simply look at the charge and determine, you know, is it accurate? Is everything correct? Yep, it is. And then you move into the secondary phase. So I think for people to understand that this process is really derived by the members, it's the members selecting who they want to serve in that kind of capacity. And if they feel like that there's some behavior that's unethical, then they as a member bring those charges forward and we just simply act in a seat of judgment and try to make the best determination of what we think the outcome should be. Thank you, I appreciate your time and mm. your insight. You're welcome, anytime. We'll talk more about the Ethics Committee meeting on Friday's show, which airs at 8 p.m. on Idaho Public Television. For more information, visit the Idaho Report's blog or visit us on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find all of those links at idahoptv.org slash idahoreports. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.